Go and be like the good Samaritan. Finally, a sermon that everyone agrees with. Liberal, conservative, everybody agrees. Go and be like a Samaritan. I mean, how difficult is that? Go and be like a Samaritan. You're dismissed. I'm serious. I'm kidding. Okay, let's get down to business a little bit. It sounds easy, right? Go and be like a Samaritan. Well, consider for a moment what the Samaritan did. The Samaritan approached an individual who had been harmed, an individual who is an ethnic enemy of himself. The Samaritan bandaged this ethnic enemy. The Samaritan then allowed this ethnic enemy to ride on his animal to a town. The Samaritan then paid for his ethnic enemy to stay at a place. And then the Samaritan said, whatever else they need, I'll pay for it later as well for their ethnic enemy. Go and be like the Samaritan. Well, how are you supposed to be like the Samaritan when you're helping a young second grade child who doesn't have a bed? A second grade child who's living in a family of six and three of the kids are all sleeping together in a 10 by 10 room. None of them sleeping on a bed. None of them sleeping very well at all with different ages in there and not exactly in a comfortable place. Yet the, the father of this second grader is sleeping in a nice waterbed in the other room. The father of this child doesn't get up and go to work in the morning. Do you give this second grader a blank check? Do you provide a bed for this second grader when the dad could very well go and provide a bed for this second grader? Do you provide a bed for this second grader when the dad's walking around with an iPhone from your government tax dollars? What do you do? How do you be the Samaritan? It sounds simple. Go and be the Samaritan. But it gets real complex really fast. Why? Because being a Samaritan involves people. You cannot be a Samaritan. You cannot go and do likewise when people are not involved. Because the whole focus is what? Loving people. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is having this conversation with a lawyer. And the reason he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, he's trying to help people understand what does it mean to love people. And what does Jesus say? Loving people is what? The fulfillment of the law. Loving your neighbor as yourself is the whole point. It's what summarizes what all the laws come to and say, if you're doing that, it's really a picture of living out the heart of God. And so it gets messy being the Samaritan because being the Samaritan involves people. And guess what? You're a mess. And not only are you a mess, but people all around us are a mess. And when you get involved with people, it's going to be messy. So today we want to ask ourselves a very practical and simple question. How do I love people? How do I love people specifically who are struggling? 
A word that we would commonly use for that is poverty. People who are in poor situations where they cannot provide for themselves, where there is a gap that they cannot sustain what they need by what they have. Our focus today is to specifically say, how do we live out this parable of the Good Samaritan? How do we live out this overarching desire of God to love others, specifically in the situation with people who are struggling? I think we can agree this morning that God wants us to love. In 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love, for those born of God love, for God is love. And all of 1 John chapter 4 unpacks this whole theme that God is love, therefore people who call on the name of God are also going to what? Love. There's no disagreement this morning, I don't think, that God wants us to love. But specifically, how do we love our neighbor who is struggling? And so this morning we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to focus on some very practical issues of implementing this desire of God to love others in the area of poverty. And so we're going to start this morning by saying, we want to first understand poverty. What does it mean to be poor from the Bible's perspective? Well, strictly from the Bible perspective, to be poor is to be in a state of need, oftentimes economic. So when the Bible's talking about poverty, a vast majority of the time, 90, 95% of the time, it's talking about an economic need an individual has be able to provide food, shelter, clothing. So that's to be poor is to be in a state of need, but the circumstances and causes are complex. This is vital to know because how you define something determines how you solve something. So if poverty is simply a lack of material goods, most people would then solve poverty by what? Giving material goods. But poverty is not just a lack of material goods. It's being short of the necessities, but there's circumstances and complexities behind it. The Bible teaches that there's a variety of different reasons for poverty, and I believe they can be kind of summarized in the following areas. The first reason that there's poverty is because of oppression. In James chapter 5, for example, it says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silvers have corroded and your corrosion will be evidence against you and they will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So God is crying out an indictment here against the wealthy in the land, And the reason that there's poor in the land is because the wealthy in the land have oppressed the poor. They have not given them a fair wage. And the lack of a fair wage has caused them to be in need. Oppression is a real issue in a variety of countries around the world where governments oppress people. Where governments are living just in the high and mighty, having big festivals and watching military drills with flags waving around. That's what you see on TV. But what you don't see on TV is 90% of that country living in terrible conditions. The government is oppressing them, using them for the benefit of a few. This can happen by governments. 
This can happen by individuals. This can happen by businesses. But one of the driving reasons for poverty is oppression. That's why in the Old Testament, multiple times, God's prophet would come and say, I desire justice. And justice in those situations meant fairness, that people were treated rightly for what they were doing. So oppression is a big deal. It's one of the reasons for poverty. A second reason for poverty is external circumstances. Bad stuff happens. So, for example, an earthquake or a fire. An earthquake or a fire can come, and it can devastate a land. So if you have an agriculture-type area and you have an external circumstance like a flood, what's going to happen? You, you might be in trouble. You might then enter into a cycle of not need, having what you need. So there's external circumstances that can cause countries, individuals, generations to fall into poverty. The third thing that can cause people to fall into poverty is very simple moral failure. People can do bad things. So moral failure, someone can become a thief. They can, they can steal and thief and then they get put in jail for 60 days. And as a result of that, they can't get hired anywhere else. So what happens? They enter into a cycle of poverty, of needing others to help them. Well, what got them in that situation? They disobeyed a command of God. They stole from someone else. Drug use, drunkenness, of putting your body under the control of a different substance. That's a moral failure. And it can cause you to enter into a cycle of continuous poverty. Along with moral failure, there's just simple foolishness. I remember my grandpa just constantly talking to me as a farmer. He just said, and I think somewhere in the Bible, I'm not totally sure, so don't quote me on this. But he constantly talked to us about saying, every seven years, at least in a seven-year period, you're going to have one really bad year as a farmer. You just, you just know what's going to happen. And so you go in expecting it. So what do you do? Over that seven-year period, you know you're going to have six years. So the, but those six years of what you have have to cover a seven-year period. So what's the wise thing to do? Save during those six years to cover the seventh year. The foolish thing to do is to say, hey, I have all I need right now. I'm going to live high and mighty. And then what happens? The external circumstance comes, and you can't meet your needs. Foolishness. Multiple Proverbs, even multiple teachings in the New Testament about being wise. So, oppression, external circumstances, moral failure, or foolishness are different, excuse me, are different ways in which poverty comes to fruition in the world around us. So you've got to be aware of these issues that are behind the scenes that are bringing people into poverty. So when people are in poverty, it leads to an interesting question that I think all of us have wrestled with on some level. How do I love in a way that does not enable a person? In other words, how do I share God's mercy and care for an individual that's not going to encourage them to continue in the exact same behavior? I am a horrible enabler when it comes to sleeping. I, when Before we had kids, I was like, this is the way it's going to be. These kids be in bed at 8, and they'll get out of bed when I tell them to get out of bed in the morning. Okay, if you come to our house now, it doesn't operate that way at all. No one sleeps in their assigned bed, including parents. No one goes to bed at an assigned bedtime, including parents. So basically, after a while, what did I do? I just said, you know what? I want my sleep. I don't care what that means for this kid. 
that might make this kid a horrible sleeper. I'm going to bed. I mean, sleeping with him on a couch, their bed or our bed, judge me all you want. Guess what I've done? We've created a catastrophe of a situation. So we've lengthened out the goal. By the time they go to college, all will be well. But you know what I mean. You do certain things that what? Create certain behaviors to continue. Well, how do you and I love other people in a way that does not what? Encourage them to continue in a certain pattern of living. This is really hard. And we do this really poorly in America specifically. So what, what do we do? The first thing that usually happens is this, though. Well, they put themselves in that situation. I'm not going to help them. I want to share with you a quote by Pastor Jonathan Edwards, who has written a lot about Christian charity. It's a little bit long, so I want to put it on the screen for us. If they have come into poverty by a vicious idleness and laziness or self-indulgence, yet we are not thereby excused from all obligation to relieve them unless they continue in those vices. If we do otherwise, we shall act in a manner very contrary to the rule of loving one another as Christ loved us. Now Christ hath loved us, pitied us, and greatly laid out himself to relieve us form from what want and misery which we brought on ourselves by our own folly and wickedness. Obviously, this was not written in 2008. So Jonathan Edwards is saying here, hey, if you say I can't help someone because they brought it on themselves, stop. Because guess what? You'd be saying, well, God shouldn't help me because I brought this upon myself. But what did God do? God, while you were yet a sinner, while you and I were still in the wrong, what did he do? He loved us. He reached down. In other words, he took the initiation. He didn't say, well, they got to see if they pass the worthiness test. There is no worthiness test for the love of God, therefore, there can be no worthiness test for love from the people of God. If we put out a worthiness test, we better expect a worthiness test from our God. So it starts there, but we all know it gets a little bit difficult, and, and Jonathan Edwards acknowledges it. This is critical. Notice what he says. From all obligation to relieve them unless they continue in those vices. So let's make it really practical. Someone goes to jail for doing something wrong. The system of government has been put in place to carry out a system of justice to them. But they come out of jail. They come out of jail. Our obligation, our opportunity as followers of Jesus Christ is to what? When they come out of jail, help them re-enter into society. Even though they put themselves, what? In a bad position to begin with. So we should extend the love. However, in the midst of that, if they continue in those vices that put them in that spot is where it becomes really messy, really fast. And some of you this morning would like a black and white answer on that front. The Bible doesn't give us a black and white answer at all. But here's what we know from God's treatment of us. Is that when God's love appears to you and I, in the book of Hebrews it kind of puts it this way. When we've tasted salvation, when we've experienced the goodness of God, and after we've experienced the goodness of God and tasted salvation, if we then turn our backs on God and continue down a certain path, God's word has some extremely difficult words for us. 
It's because it's this mysterious part where, as Christians, myself included, we continue to sin after we come to know Christ. We make mistakes. But God's Word is pretty clear that after you come to know Christ, if you continue intentionally down a certain path, there's extreme danger there. And I want to walk this very carefully of how I talk about this, but Scripture does say if you continue down a path intentionally, if you continue down after you've tasted and seen the kingdom of God, there, there's a difficult path for you. So, so God's treatment of us kind of does lay out this pathway of if we do initiate with love and help someone, it's not like God says to us, hey, if they keep doing intentionally living in that vice, God doesn't say, well, just keep pouring into them. We know that. But he also doesn't just give us a clear formula of how to solve it, of, well, how many times do they go back, da-da-da-da-da. Jonathan Edwards continues this line of thinking by saying this, if they continue in the same courses still, yet that doth not excuse us from charity to their families that are innocent. If we cannot relieve those families without, having, without their having something of it, yet that ought not to be a bar in the way of our charity. This is really tough. So let's go back where we started, the second grader without a bed. That's a real-life situation in Sioux Falls, South Dakota today, multiple times over. Where what, what do we do? Well, I believe Jonathan Edwards would teach us, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City who has a lot of experience in poverty ministry, would say the following, you cannot enable a five-year-old. Now, a five-year-old can learn bad habits and can learn bad patterns, but you cannot enable a, pov a five-year-old into poverty. If you don't start to enable, they might be in poverty anyhow because they're being enabled that way by their parents. You see how that works? They're already learning those bad behaviors from their parents. So they're being enabled in that direction anyhow. And so as followers of Christ, this isn't law. But this is the philosophy that I follow coming from some of these teachers. As that there's children involved. In our society, it's really under the age of 18. But in other societies, it's under the age of 12. If children are involved, there's going to be a lot of enablement that's done for the parents. But what we're doing is we're doing it for the children. So let's get real with this second grader that's sleeping without a bed right now. Do you think that's affecting their education at all, not having a good night's rest? I got a couple teachers that you should talk to if you probably disagree with that. And their education, proven by multiple studies over and over, has a direct effect then on their future life and how, what type of member of society they will be. Sometimes, this isn't totally all of the time, but one of the correlating stats that people look at is, if you want to know what your prison population is going to be in 10 years, people will go and look at your third grade test scores. Your third grade test scores will correlate, not cause, your third grade test scores will correlate what your prison population will be in 10 or 15 years. So you want to give that second grader a bed? Is it going to cause the dad to continue with some of the bad habits? Absolutely. But it might be the only opportunity to break the cycle of generational poverty with that second grader. This is happening all of the time, all around us. And it's really tough to determine what to do. 
Multiple of you in this room have been with me on those visits of delivering furniture where you come in and you leave frustrated because you're like, what are we doing here? They're people, they've got abilities and they've got big screens, but yet they don't have a kitchen table or a bed for their children. And you leave there, and I've left before with a spirit of judgmentalism, saying, Shh, shame on them. It's tough. Well, guess what? Our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ are sometimes to overlook the wrongdoing for the sake of sharing the love of God with the innocent. So there's not clear boundaries on this at all, but God would have us love. And so what do you do? You want more clarity. Let me share a couple of things with you of maybe a rule to think about. So you're trying to help an individual who's struggling. Don't take this word for word or too literally, but don't do for others what they can do for themselves. Don't do for others what they can do for themselves. So for example, I've seen this happen multiple times. You feel like you're doing good for someone. So you go to someone's house and you're bringing stuff up to their home. And there's a mom and there's a dad standing there at the door. And you're just hauling all of this stuff. Guess what you should do? You should say to the mom or dad, hey, could you give me a hand and help haul some stuff from the car? Because by the very fact of you just doing everything, you're what? You're lowering their dignity when they have the ability to do it. Now, it gets messy again when they don't want to do it or are un unwilling to do it. However, we should try in all that we can to not do something for others that they can do for themselves. So, for example, let's say you're caring for an individual and you're helping them apply for a job. Guess what? Let them sit at the computer and fill out the application and you sit by them. It's so tempting for us, like, oh, I can do that faster. Let me in there. And it's done. But allow them to take ownership of it, even though it's going to be messier and longer for yourself. So when possible, don't do for others what they can do for themselves. So there's no clarity on how to love people without enabling them. The two big things are this. When children are involved, set down your pride. Set down the judgmental spirit. And let us reach out to the innocent who have done nothing on their own to put themselves in these conditions. And then secondly, when appropriate, do not do for others what they can do for themselves. That's not rich talking. Let me share with you a verse from 2 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians. He says this, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. One of, one of the major problems that they attack in the Old Testament and New Testament authors say in a couple of different spots is laziness. Is that God created work. It's a good thing. And so we should encourage it where and when appropriate. The number one way to avoid enablement is this relationship. The best way to enable is someone needs something, say, hey, we'll cover for it. Here it is. Please go and take care of that. The best way is relationship. And here's the line I'd encourage you to use with people. You're working with someone, helping someone, just loving on them. Just ask them this, say, we're willing to help if you allow us into your life. We're willing to help 
if you allow us into your life. What that means is this. We need to know everything that's going on so that what? We can deal with the root issues. If a person's willing to allow you into them life, to talk through what's going on, to share behind the scenes, that's where you have a real opportunity to help love them and begin to flourishing member of community. Relationship is where it's at. Yet it's extremely, extremely messy. God wants us to love. Yet, sometimes we are going to enable in the process. And guess what? It's okay. Relax. Relax. Sometimes it's going to happen. But you're just, you're getting messy being the hands and feet of Jesus. So who should I help? If you haven't noticed, there's needs all around us. All around the world right now. There's people dying because of starvation and lack of clean water. There's needs all around us here in the city of Sioux Falls. People that are are struggling to have their needs met on a daily basis. Well, who do you help? Well, guess what? The Bible's unhelpful here. It's It's not a manual. The Bible's not a manual. It's like, hey, this is who to help on day X and who to help. There's nothing there. So who should you help? Very simply this. The opportunity that's put before you. If God's put an opportunity before you, someone to love, guess what? God wants you to love them. You're not responsible for everything. Nowhere does God say your judgment will be based off of how you solved the world poverty situation. But guess what? As we looked last week in Matthew 25, Jesus is going to say, what did you do for the least of these? the one that you saw, the one that you interacted with. So who should you help? You should help with the opportunity that's right before you. And then secondly, you should define what it means to be in need. So I'm going to say something extremely unpopular this morning, extremely unpopular in the city of Sioux Falls. Being in sports is not a need. However, having the ability to read is a need. And so there's good causes out there that are raising money to help people have be, participate in youth sports. I've got nothing against that. that. That's a good thing. However, it's not the Bible thing. Very first and foremost, Jesus would have us take care of the basic needs. And so when we do stuff as a church, we raise money to buy books for kids to have in their home because reading is a need. But we're not doing an effort to get every kid in an activity or a sport. Again, there's nothing wrong with it, but what we've got to do is we've got to take care of the basic needs. So define need and then take advantage of the opportunities that are right before you with those needs. Okay, now that I've made everybody mad, let's make everybody even a little bit madder. What's the role of government in how we care for those who are struggling in poverty? Okay, grab onto your seats right now. Put both of your hands down like this so you don't throw anything. Okay, the Bible says very little, if anything, what the role of the government should be in caring for people who are poor in countries. The Bible does not say it's wrong for a government to be involved with the least of these. At the same time, the Bible does not say that every government was created to care for the least of these. It is not sinful to be a Democrat, and want the government to provide a basic social structure. Nothing sinful about that at all. 
It's also not sinful to say as a Republican, you know what? I don't believe the government should be involved in this sector of society. Not sinful at all. What is sinful is as an individual to pass the responsibility on to the government or as an individual to say, I don't want the government to do it and I'm not going to do it as an individual. As a follower of Jesus Christ, the responsibility falls on us as individuals and as a church. But as a church and as individuals, we can have a different perspective of what the role of the government should be in society. If you want to debate this, please feel free to email me or call me. We'll set up a time to visit. The reason I'm not going anywhere in the Bible on this is there's nowhere to go. The Bible doesn't give guidance to a democratic democracy government on how to handle this situation. And so again, you've got to be faithful to the calling that God's placed on our lives. Finally, God calls us to love. We all agree on that. What's our goal of loving others? This is where we've fallen short as evangelical Christians. Too often the goal of loving others has been to convert others. Too often the goal of loving others has been to get the attention of others so they'll ask us about Jesus. Guess what? The goal of loving others is to love others. Love is not a conduit to a different end. Love is an end itself. You got that? Love is an end itself. Say that with me. Love is an end itself. That's it. Because guess what? Love is not a work. I'm not loving others to get God to love me. This is foundational to Christianity. Love is a fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's a fruit. It comes from what? Some work already done. So the goal of love is to simply love. And guess what? If you're loving someone and it doesn't accomplish something, that's not on you. You've done what you were called to do. You loved. And so today, love for the sake of love. Because God has loved you. We do not love to get something. We do not love to get God something. We love because God is love. And the goal of love is to simply love. It's going to get messy if everybody leaves this room this morning and says, yeah, I'm going to love. It's going to get messy because guess what? You and I are messy. This last week we were preparing, I was preparing, I, I don't, never mind, I'm not going to go there. I was preparing our house for community group and doing some cleaning. As I was cleaning, getting ready for the day, I was vacuuming and thing, and I was underneath the couch because I was like pulling out one thing after another. I'm like, what in the world? How much stuff is under there? And so I decided to take a little bit of a peek. I took a little bit of a peek. Bad idea. Bad idea. And so what I did was I just took a little wet Swiffer and I took my hand and I took it back far enough where you could step back and not see the dusty line. Beautiful. Haven't had a community group member complain about under our couch yet. But guess what's under that couch? Some popcorn, M&Ms, mostly stuff from the kids. 
But when you lift it up and you look, it gets messy in a hurry. Guess what? If I started poking around in your life, in your life, in your life, it would get messy in a hurry. And if you started poking around in my life, it would get messy in a hurry. Because in each of our lives, there's junk. There's stuff that doesn't belong there. Stuff that we caused to be there and stuff that others caused to be there. But in the midst of that junk, in the midst of that love, Romans chapter 5 tells us this. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God, God took the initiative. And if you want to be a lover of others, the very first thing you have to do is come to receive the love of God himself. Because God says in 1 John that you are the beloved. And you cannot pass on what you have not yet received. And so this morning, some of you are thinking to yourself, I, I don't deserve love. I don't feel like God should love me. Well, guess what? You have no say in the matter. God does love you. Mess and all. And the proof of that love is the cross of Jesus Christ, where God went on your behalf. And so God loved us in the midst of the mess. And now God wants his people to go out and love others in the midst of the mess. And so today, will you move the couch? Will you move the couch and allow God to love you? God's love is not a sentiment. God's love is an action. It does something. In Romans chapter 5, that I was just quoting about God loving us while we are still enemies, the action of God's love is this, is it reconciles us to God the Father. When you move that couch and God's love comes in, it restores the relationship between you and your Creator. God's love wants to do something in your life. It's not a sentiment, it's an action. And God now wants us to go out and love, not in a sentimental way, but in an active way. And so today, move the couch, receive God's love by acknowledging the stuff under the couch, and then go and get under somebody else's couch with them and get in the mess. Let us go forth and be a good Samaritan. Let us pray. Loving Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging that oftentimes we have been unloving. We acknowledge that we are unlovable at times. And God, we ask that you would intervene. Make your love known to us this morning. I pray for anyone right now in this room, myself included, Lord, I pray for anyone that's struggling with the concept of your love. God, I pray that you would intervene. Make your love evident to them. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would bring us new life in your love. And I pray now today you would energize with your love to go out and extend it to others. God, this next week, I ask that you'd put a person in each of our pathway that we can love. Put someone in our pathway that we can love as you have loved us. God, thank you for your love. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.